The following is audio from the K.H. Muscata Biblical ABC's International Theology Conference. The conference took place between the 8th and 9th of November in 2021. Hope you enjoy. Okay. Are we all back? Um, with coffee and fresh air in our lungs. Um, then uh, we get to the uh, keynote speaker of the day. Phil Ziegler is dogmatics professor at the University of Aberdeen, where he is also the co-director of the Aberdeen Center for Protestant Theology. He distinguished himself as a specialist on the field of the Christology and of the dialectical theology uh, in the 20th century. And uh, I think particularly on the field of Bonhoeffer studies. In 2018, he published the book Militant Grace, the apocalyptic turn and the future of Christian theology, in which he uh, combines, um, I think um, that could be a way to state it, he combines dogmatic ways of thinking with biblical theology. And that could also be a link uh, with the work of Miskolten. Besides all of this, um, it was also, I might add, uh, great fun to work with Phil in the committee preparing this uh, conference. So I'm really, to, really happy to welcome you, um, Phil Ziegler, uh, the floor to you. Thank you very much, Marco, for, for that. Um, and thanks to everyone for your uh, patient ear at the end of, a, of the day's conversation. Um, one point of business before I begin, and that's simply to say that you'll see in the chat that I've um, uh, posted there two files, there are two versions of the same thing. Um, what that is, is a, is a single page handout that uh, kind of lays out the structure of the, of the talk in case that's of use for people who are following along. Um, as is the matter of these things, the structure is not particularly complicated, but you might enjoy and it might be useful for you to, to have that there. Uh, so please do, do download that from the chat. Um, my modest task here is to offer some remarks on the theological provocation that is Miskota's biblical ABCs. Uh, this short introduction is followed by discussion of the work's treatment of scripture, God, and the Christian life in, in turn. In each case, I will work through Miskota's argument and try to pick out some of the defining features of his distinctive handling of these themes, and then to consider something of their theological importance. The paper concludes with some more general musings on the significance of Miskota's work for our understanding of the nature and the tasks and the horizon of Christian theological endeavor today. I hope throughout to at least do some rough justice to Miskota's rich, compressed, and suggestive text, and I hope that the inevitable selectivity of the discussion uh, won't prove too idiosyncratic. Let me begin with some brief reflections on the genre of the work. Miskota's project is comparable, I think, to, uh, to some degree, with other catechetical fighting texts emerging from the German church struggle, such as, for example, Heinrich Vogel's uh, The Iron Ration of a Christian from 1936, or even Bonhoeffer's Discipleship from 1937. 
all concise works aimed to remind Christians laboring in high, highly pressurized churches um, of the key and elemental matters of faith which are required to galvanize a better resistance. All three of these texts are polemical interventions into concrete church political situations. All three display a fierce embrace of the theology of the word, and all three rivet their attention to the Bible. Let, let us be led back to scripture, to the word and the call of Jesus Christ himself, writes Bonhoeffer in his own introduction, for in times of church renewal, the Holy Scripture naturally becomes richer in its content for us. The main staple in Fogel's iron ration is the fact that God speaks to us, as he puts it, in and through the biblical witness, in a voice distinct from all other voices, which we might well mistake for the voice of God, but which are not God's voice. Writing from the occupied Netherlands in 1941, Miss Gotha certainly agrees. His work opens with the observation that, quote, one characteristic of the change of epochs we are living through is a new attentiveness to the biblical witness. And if the church's only hope lies in the adventure of living under the word, uh, a phrase which recurs throughout the book, then this means that any and all real renewal, as he puts it, must come from scripture. And yet such comparisons almost immediately highlight the distinctiveness of Miskota's biblical ABCs. Fogel's book is straightforwardly catechetical in its form and aim, concisely setting out the full scope of the content of the Christian confession in a recognizably creedal sequence. Bonhoeffer's offers a focused exegesis of key tracts of the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount and some Pauline materials marked by a massive Christological concentration. Both these works are ardent and rhetorically self-conscious, running very close to, and then regularly tipping over into proclamation. But Miskota's book differs by design. It shares Vogel's educational aim, but not its comprehensive scope or its dogmatic idiom. And while, like Bonhoeffer's Nachfolge, Miskota's biblical ABCs wrestles with scripture directly and intensively, it does so in a different mood, with a different center of exegetical gravity, and with notable Christological restraint. More about that later. But perhaps most markedly, while Bonhoeffer and Vogel hasten their readers towards the essence of the Christian faith and the pressing action that corresponds to it, Miskota bids his readers to slow down and moderate, as he puts it. Of course, neither distraction nor quietism are his aim, but rather Miskota's invitation is to a more deliberate, reflective, and stepwise approach to what is urgent and essential. Indeed, what is urgent because it is essential. The controlling mode is didache rather than kerygma, instruction rather than proclamation or even Perinesis. His immediate purpose is in fact precautionary, which is to say, to teach, as he puts it, the grammar necessary to avoid misunderstanding the essence of God. Put positively, he aims to foster a disciplined patience upon the primordial action from which all else follows, which is the hearing of the word in the words of the scriptural witness. What this requires, he says, with I think a hint of irony, 
is, as he puts it, a dry and merely formal approach to scripture that invites readers to enter the text as a world and which offers a few signposts, again, his term, to aid in exploring the wide zone of reflecting and seeking and drawing near that surrounds the event of the word in the words. So the biblical ABCs meets us as an unusual kind of catechesis. Its aim is to prime us and to facilitate our reading and hearing of scripture for the sake of confronting, or shall we say, better being confronted by its essential content. The work itself is not that confrontation, but rather looks only to stage this, to set the stage for it and to prepare its way. Perhaps in this we're not wrong to hear a quiet, yet I think distinct echo of John Calvin's declared purpose in the Institutes of Christian Religion, where he writes that his ambition is to prepare and instruct candidates in sacred theology for the reading of the divine word in order that they may be able both to have easy access to it and to advance in it without stumbling. Without betraying this goal, Calvin's preparatory and heuristic project inevitably transgresses its own limitations in ways that are both dogmatic and homiletic. So too does Miskotas. As he says with understatement in the closing pages, Already in this preparatory grammar, you may have sensed the breath of God's love. From afar, perhaps you heard the murmur of the teaching as the source of life, of living discipline, of living virtue, of living action. Work of this kind, he says, cannot completely avoid the Bible's principal content. For there are no prolegomena to theology which are not, or which are fully insulated from its eventual subject matter, and so not itself already theological in some important sense. Yet, Ms. Scota himself puts the matter in a much more existential register when he confesses that the biblical ABCs is in fact, as he says, born out of terror and passion. The terror and passion of Christological existence under occupation, to be sure, in this context, attending to the biblical ABCs becomes a decidedly tactical and factual necessity, as he puts it. And openness to the importance of the concrete situation and the context of communication in which Christian theology is undertaken is a hallmark of Miskota's work both here in his previous works and again in When the Gods Are Silent, his great post-war writing. But there is also, I think, another terror and a different passion at work here. And that is the terror and the passion ingredient in the encounter with the subject matter of the Bible itself and in wrestling with the object of the faith and hope of the people of God as such. Hence, the grammatical focus and the grammatical quality of Miskota's task does not signal a retreat into a cool place of Wittgensteinian contemplation. Rather, it is, as he himself says, the first offensive move in the epic battle of spirits. The lessons it has to teach amount to a call to arms, a summons to take responsibility for the language of the biblical witness, to labor to do justice to its distinctive forms and functions, and to acknowledge that these witnesses do not address us simply in order to communicate in a game with no consequences, as Levinas once put it. Thus, Miskota's modest grammatical proposals, in fact, give voice to an arduous ethics of responsible reading 
and responsible listening to scripture as scripture. This theological grammar comes in hot, as it were, because it is the grammar of the Bible, which is to say it's an account of the internal logic of the library of witnesses who, as instruments of the truth, address to us words meant for life. Mescota's elementary grammar might, as he says, at most, bear an imprint of the uniqueness of the divine name. But it is just that kind of work and bears just that kind of imprint nonetheless. To be clear, the specific ethical quality of the work I have in view is inherent in the formalism of the project itself. Life under the word, life lived from out of scripture, can take its proper shape only when it recognizes and inhabits and corresponds to the ground design, the constitution, the model, the frame, the pattern, the fabric, and its warp and weft, to the ground structure, to the ground pattern of the Bible, or again, in his words, to the particular order that governs it, to the fixed patterns of revelation, uh, which demand reading from the particular to, to the general, all of his terms gathered into one place. Miskota's preoccupying concern throughout is simply to display this taxis of scripture. Responsible interpretation is urged to recognize and to honor it as the sine qua non of proper understanding. The stakes are high for, as he puts it, neglecting the biblical order and defying the biblical ABCs is fatal to the security, joy, and resilience of our lives. Notwithstanding all of this, we need to ask what we can properly ask and expect from Miskota's book. As he himself stresses, the biblical ABCs is not itself a work of dogmatics, nor is itself a systematic uh, uh, elaboration of the content of the biblical witness. Its occasional tactical form as a timeless intervention into the pressing crises of the Dutch churches under the conditions of wartime occupation marks it as an irregular exercise in Christian thinking to be sure. And so in one sense, it is something less than dogmatics, something merely preliminary and preparatory uh, as he himself has pleaded. And yet precisely because of what it is, it is a work that confronts us as something more than dogmatics, a fiercely concentrated effort to discern the necessary and sufficient biblical conditions of possibility for faith and life, and thereby also the vital prolegomena to any and all Christian theology. That it points towards dogmatics in just and only this way does not diminish, but I would suggest actually heightens its theological importance. I hope with these few introductory remarks, I've explained something of how and why I will approach the material task at hand in the way that I do. And with that, on to section two, some uh, theological variations on biblical grammatical themes. So first, the scripture as Christian Torah. We begin where Miskota himself begins, namely with the concise case for recognizing and receiving the Bible as a whole, and the Old Testament in particular, as Christian Torah. Teaching or instruction names both the quality and the telos of the biblical witness across its many and varied forms. All the Bible is teaching, he writes. 
neither metaphysical explanation nor moral admonition. Torah is rather true teaching from God. Indeed, it is the impact of God meeting our spirit, as he puts it, given to direct a wide and open and still yet quite definite life. An exercise in divine saving power, it takes the form of guidance and direction and judgment and counsel. It points away, inviting decision and change. From it, as he puts it, we can learn life. Addressed to the activity and the endeavor of both individuals and the congregation, it is as to its form mobile and multifaceted and symphonic, able to interject into all our diverse affairs in order to stir up and to shape every good work. Mescota's citation of question 91 of the Heidelberg Catechism in this context reminds us that this territory is native to Reformed theology. And we might consider his opening gambit here to be a redeployment and an amplification of the traditional third use of the law, here turned into a methodological prolegomena or a polemical recollection perhaps that this third use is truly, as Calvin himself taught, the proper and principal use. And so in some sense, rightly proceeds and comprehends all other subsequent discussion of Christian faith and life. It's the first thing. For Miskota, this recollection calls the church back to what he calls its first vocation, to learn and to live from out of the holy teaching. The theme of scripture as Torah, announces both the fundamental role of the Old Testament in Miskota's theological vision and his keen sense of Christian solidarity with Jewish neighbors in an hour of trial. Both motifs combine in Miskota's confession when he writes, we are experiencing again how much we are connected with Israel through the holy instruction that we have received from God. This remark, suggests that the crisis which elicits the need for the biblical ABCs is nothing if not a crisis concerning this connection. The the particular medium in which the problem of the disconnection of church and Israel appears in this context is that of language, and in particular the language of scripture. Miskota considers that language holds an exceptional position in the life of human beings. For the people of God, Language is the way in which they become involved in the life and purposes of the Lord, as he puts it. It is precisely because he's alert to the troubling decay of human language in the present and the evident forgetfulness of the quality and form of biblical language in the churches that the biblical ABCs must take a form, as he describes it, a linguistic inventory of the teaching found in the Old Testament. Miskota takes this to be the condition of possibility for any future faithfulness and renewal in in the church and in theology, and essential to the exercise of Christian responsibility in relation to contemporary Judaism. Now, Miskota's approach to the scriptures as Torah also calmly but boldly militates not only against Nazi anti-Judaism, but also against what Friedrich Wilhelm Marquardt has called the inveterate mistrust that Christianity has long shown towards its Jewish contemporaries in matters of scriptural interpretation. Of course, Marquardt's own life work was a sustained assault on just this mistrust, and more than that, a positive uh, effort to win through to what he once suggestively called a Protestant joy in the Torah. 
Miskota certainly stands in the front ranks of those contemporary Christian theologians and exegetes who are committed to the repatriation of the fundamentals of Christian faith and life into the nexus of Israel's history, scriptures, and so historical Jewish faith. Further, Miskota's fundamental intuitions about the devastating impact of the loss of knowledge of scriptural Torah and its elementary grammar find, I think, profound resonances in the recent work of Brent Strawn. Strawn's recent book, The Old Testament is Dying, offers a detailed and troubling, almost a terminal diagnosis of the disappearance of the knowledge of the language and the narratives and the thought forms of the Old Testament in the Christian churches of North America. His research shows that most Christian churches operate with a kind of pigeon version, as he calls it, of the language of the Hebrew scriptures, in which even, as he says, so much of the little that is retained is, as it were, mispronounced, which is to say, either misunderstood altogether or re-understood in fundamentally different ways. If you wanted another metaphor uh, uh, that was less linguistic, we might think of uh, uh, Alistair McIntyre's imagination of modern people living in the ruins of what were once coherent traditions. Strawn's compelling study goes on to confront some of the grim theological and, and ecclesial consequences of this development in ways that tell, I think, of the abiding importance of Miskota's programmatic vision on just this point. Okay, and with that, to section B, the Lord God of Israel. There's no question that the heart of Miskota's book is its treatment of the Lord God of Israel. I certainly cannot do justice here to its rich elaboration, but I concentrate on what I take to be his own preoccupation, and that is the particular taxis, again, of the scriptural witness to God. That ground pattern and direction and sequencing, which sits beneath and runs through and superintends scripture in spite of its kaleidoscopic variety. Discerning and honoring this taxis is what makes identification of this God possible by way of a disciplined attentiveness to the particular, his words. There is perhaps no word so often italicized by Miskota than this, as in this God. And given his predilection for italics, that is saying something indeed. The essential form of the Old Testament witness is deferred or indirect uh, ostention, a linguistic pointing, a pointing to the acts, to the way, to the word of the Lord, in order to point uh, more ultimately to the one whose acts they are and whose way it is and whose words are spoken. Taken together, this ostention picks out and identifies the Lord, the one who bears the unspeakable name, this God. Appearing in the midst of the world of ancient religions, Miskota says, the name distinguishes God from other beings, other gods, and demons. And he goes on to explain this programmatically, and I'm quoting here at length. He writes, the central place of the name means that revelation is always a particular revelation, always has been, is, and will be. God has a name. God is not the nameless one. God is not the all, but is known as a reality that distinguishes itself in the world, from the world. God does not appear to us as the most general, that which can be found everywhere, but rather as the most unique, that which can be sought and found somewhere specific. And that this God is our God, in this lies our salvation. Now, on terrain such as this, the business of theology proper must be biblical all the way down. 
describing and denominating and displaying and distinguishing and so disambiguating the profile of the Lord exegetically, and thus fixing attention ever more intensely on the singularity of the name. I will be there howsoever I will be there. In short, Miskota's entire program is wagered on the claim that this God wills to be known in this way and to be called upon and to, to be approached like so, his phrase. I think on the one hand, Miskota here points the way toward a kind of theology that we know well, one hesitant of extra biblical speculation and devoted to the realistic narrative identification of the God of the gospel from the pages of scripture. One that knows God as a being in act, whose identity in and of itself is in no way different from the way that God approaches us in self-revelation. A kind of theology where divine perfections and predicates, um, the three that Miskota himself picks up, living, personal, loving, are in fact compressed ciphers for expansively recounted patterns of action, which can be discerned and distilled from the telling of the holy history in which divine faithfulness overruns human faithfulness, divine patience always outbids human confusion, and divine mercy overreaches every human defection and loss and contempt. Miskota imagines theologians, as he puts it, becoming as naive as the Bible. It's a striking phrase. Uh, becoming as naive as the Bible once again, and by such a second naivete, pursuing a kind of biblical th thinking uh, whose form and content does justice to, to the fact that God is God and goes along God's own way. On the other hand, though, Miskota's grammar of God also points in some less familiar directions. His emphasis on the name as the axis around which all theology proper must turn is, I think, an uncommon one in Christian theology. Reflecting both the fundamental prior priority afforded to the Old Testament witness and certainly lessons learned from his own study of Judaism, both ancient and contemporary. Miskota identifies the name, the logic of its operation and our relationship to it as the unsettling key to all the riches and depths of scripture, insisting that as he puts it, one should never get used to this name. Again, it's a striking phrase. That our thinking and speaking of God is governed from the first by the grammar of a singular proper name, is the decisive key to the taxis of all theology. It establishes the strict and irreversible order of speaking, and so also of knowing and thinking of God. What he calls, as we've heard already during this conference, the method of the name, that we move from the singular specific God toward the confession of deity. Or in the manner of the psalmist command, know that, that the Lord is God. First, this God, and only then, dot, dot, dot. Tethered to the singularity of the name in this way, all subsequent predication of God moves in the only sequence it reasonably can, from the name to the other names of God, then to the acts of God, from which are inferred first the communicable attributes, virtues, Miskota's term, to which are then further applied the incommunicable attributes. As he himself summarizes, the attributes of God are, in fact, the attributes of God's actions. What we say about God, what comes to our lips in praise and prayer, he continues, can be nothing else than an inference from God's actions, from God's deeds. We might say our thinking and speaking about God moves from the name, designating the unique subject, 
to that subject in act, to the quality of these acts and thus of the acting subject, and then finally to the quality of the quality of the acts of the acting subject. The necessary discipline here is to observe the order of God's virtues, as he puts it, in spite of their wild abundance. This distinctive taxis of divine predication can and must permanently structure our reflection and discourse about God. If we are not to misunderstand the Lord, then we must honor the biblical ordo loquendi at every turn. Miskota explains it this way. He writes, by referring to the order or attributes or virtues, we mean an order for us, a, a sequence in our cognizance and experience, and therefore a sequence for our confession and our praise and vitality. Knowing the way that humans come to the saving knowledge of God, which is to say the name of God, belongs to the biblical ABCs. That's, a, that, that's an important claim. Knowing the way that humans come to the saving knowledge of God belongs itself to the biblical ABCs. He continues, such knowing is not a one-time event, but a continuous renewal through which our joy may remain. So theology here is simply not at liberty to ignore or to circumvent the depth grammar of the Old Testament witness, which places the singular living and redeeming Lord of the Exodus as at its permanent and dynamic center and sees everything else emerging centripetally, as he puts it, from there. This order for us, is ingredient in revelation itself. It's a crucial aspect of its salutary form. To attempt to restate the teaching of the theology proper according to another order, I think even an especially a putative ordo ascendi, the order of being, would be to gain nothing in particular and would threaten to distort everything. As you can imagine, Miskota has little appetite for the delights of perfect being theology and is deeply uninterested in the abstract question of deity as such. As he sees it, the traditional incommunicable attributes of God, infinity, omnipotence, eternity, and so on, are, arrive late on the scene as modifiers of the key relational descriptors, which tell of the shape and the direction of the concrete acts of the name. His concern is always with the particular eternity, the, the particular infinity, the particular power of this God, or even better, they arrive as adverbial glosses on the quality of the acts of this God, the quality of grace, the quality of mercy, the quality of faithfulness, and so on. Here we see the power of this grammatical analysis to reshape profoundly our understanding and use of basic theological concepts. But, I ask, is there perhaps a metaphysical correlate to this relentless and determinative emphasis that Miskota places upon the incomparable thisness of the divine identity in his biblical grammar. Perhaps we might speak awkwardly and no doubt in some sense improperly of a certain divine hexaetas, but to what gain? When we could simply honor this thisness with manifold well-formed speech of God richly funded from a disciplined hearing and inhabitation of Israel's witness to its Lord. Much more important to Miskota than the metaphysics are, I think, the poetics and the polemics of the particularity of the divine name. Now, remember the axiom that through God's acts, God distinguishes God's self in the world from the world. 
as as Mascota sees it, each and every act of God as an act of self-revelation participates in this ongoing distinguishing of God from the world. All the ways and works of God share in this one great salutary work of disambiguating the Lord, this God, from the world and everything in it, including the gods. As the ultimate source of this divine polemic, the name of God is, as we've heard all, already in the last two days, the great anti-pagan monument. In making great this claim, I think Miskota is winding tight the mainsprings of reformed iconoclasm with a key forged by just that uh, hexeatos of the Lord of Israel. This kind of iconoclasm then becomes ingredient in theology's own labor to trace and to rehearse God's act of self-distinction and to do that in its all too human thought and speech. Put positively, it is precisely by way of these polemical and particularizing acts that God travels the road to humankind, as he puts it. When it comes to the nomadic Lord of Israel, it is from knowing God's way that we come to know God's essential divinity and not the other way around. This way is the variegated sacred history of this restless, his term, God, with the wandering people of God, a history in which the divine word act, one phrase, pursues its course across the earth, realizing its task and completing its project. Escota suggests that we understand the history of God's sovereign entanglement with human beings best when we remember it, especially at its nodal points. The phrase nodal points is, is his. Of these nodal points, Jesus Christ is the middle, he says. Now, the appearance of the name Jesus Christ only at this point in the proceedings reminds us that Miskota fully funds his biblical theology from the Old Testament, though it lies open to a Christological gloss. These glosses, when they come in the treatment of theology proper, are just that, supplemental comments that further specify Miskota's elemental grammar of the name and the act and the way of God, respectively. There are kind of three Christological moments. So we read first that Jesus Christ is, as he puts it, the fulfillment, the confirmation, and the perpetuation of the one name of God. In this one, total human life, the name takes shape. And so Christ represents, he says, the epicenter of all other naming of, all other naming of God, pardon me, its essential content. This fulfillment ratifies the fact that God is a human God fundamentally aligned towards humankind, accessible, smaller, as he puts it, philanthropic. As a gloss on the act of the Lord, the sending of the Son provides, as he says, the criterion of the acts of God. The coming of the Messiah, the totality of his words and works and wonders, the act of all acts, which is his death and resurrection, is the central, singular, unique, final and unreserved, all his terms, act of God from which we learn the character and the meaning and the goal of all the acts of God, all the acts that God has done in the world, against the world, and on behalf of the world. Thirdly, as a gloss on the way of the Lord, Jesus Christ appears as the decisive middle of the transit of God, the one in whom the Lord goes the way of all flesh as his own way, in condescension and humiliation, taking up our life and death and joining us in our lot, even into the outer darkness. This Christological discourse abides by the elementary Old Testament grammar and flows firmly in the channels of the established ground structures without overflow or marked deviation. 
Christology, when it appears, does not unsettle or rupture these structures. Rather, Christology is a dogmatic site where these very structures find their decisive and most intensive iteration, the culmination and the epitome of the biblical a ABCs, which, as he puts it, enlivens our appreciation and understanding of the whole. Even though Christology is notably downstream, as it were, in the exposition of the elementary grammar of the Bible, Miskota's Christology, at least the one that he adumbrates here, is very high in the sense that for him, discourse about Jesus Christ concerns nothing other or less than, than the name and the act and the word and the way of the Lord. It is formally der derivative, we might say, but materially decisive, an intriguing Christological combination. So what then, you, 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 you may be waiting for me to ask, of the triunity of the God of the gospel. In what may well be the only non-trivial Trinitarian remark in the text, Miskota writes this, the Lord is also called Father in this same way that God may be called the Mighty One, the Lord of hosts, the Godhead, just as this same one is called and addressed and confessed as the Son and Spirit. But this is too broad a territory to cross at this time. Fair enough. And it would certainly be ill-advised to read too much out of a single sentence like this, but I do think it points in an intriguing direction. For here, Miskota cast the names, Father, Son, and Spirit, among the other names of God, suggesting perhaps that the elemental biblical grammar prioritizes not a monotheism, something which, is, which as we've heard, Miskota himself considers secondary at best, but rather, again, the thisness of the Lord as the original reality upon which all Trinitarian discourse subsequently supervenes. Something like this, I think, is suggested when Miskota elsewhere says, Father, the word Father, is more truly an epithet of the name than the reverse. So the, again, the logic of the sequence is the thing. Perhaps I wonder if we should hear here uh, echoes of Bart's account of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as God and God again and God yet again. Now, we might associate Miskota's overall orientation and approach to the doctrine of God with several different contemporary impulses. First, there are clear parallels here with certain prominent examples of Old Testament theology in our day. Uh, one thinks of the opening 300 pages uh, of Walter Brueggemann's Old Testament theology, which unpacks Israel's core testimony, as he calls it, uh, precisely by way of a stylized grammatical analysis of verbal sentences, nouns, adjectives, utterings, and markings that witness to the Lord. Or, again, the work of uh, the late Terence Fretheim, whose preoccupying question concerned the kind of God in whom the Israelites believed, and who insisted time and again in his writing that the answers that we must give are, are, have to share the Bible's own naivete. Second, Miskota's privileging of the Old Testament as the seat of the elementary grammar of theology proper is, I think, paralleled in different ways in contemporary projects as, as diverse as Kendall Solon's The God of Israel and Christian Theology, aspects of Robert Jensen's systematics, and I think with particular intensity in the first two volumes of Kate Sondreger's Systematic Theology, whose stated ambition is to write a Christian doctrine of God 
including a doctrine of the Trinity in the second volume, entirely on the basis of theological exegesis of the Pentateuch. I can't think of a project that tracks so as closely with Miskota's central intuitions as that. To this, I think we must certainly add the arresting theological program announced by Rinsa Reeling Brower in his farewell lecture from the Miskota Brueckelman chair in 2019 under the title, The Teaching of Moses and the Teaching of the Church. Right, to section three, much shorter now, you'll be glad. Third and finally, the theme of sanctification um, represents, as he puts it, so weighty a letter of the spiritual alphabet that anyone who understands it understands almost everything. And virtually everything that remains outstanding is contained within the right understanding of this matter or better, this act, he says, sanctification. For Muscoda, the expansive motif of sanctification encompasses soteriology as a whole, and so provides the controlling rubric for a range of other key terms which are not treated in this book. And he gives a long list, covenant, flesh, spirit, world, prophet, priest, king, and so on, so on, so on, sacrifice, temple. In this account, sanctification is certainly first soteriology, but also in an important way, it's first anthropology. It marks the the first place where humanity really emerges as a distinctive theme in the grammar. But not, of course, as an autonomous theme, for Muscota suggests that we must anchor our thinking here firmly in what he calls the verbal aspect of sanctification, which is to say in the divine act of sanctifying, of setting apart, of interfering with, and then requisitioning into service women and men and things. Uh, from our joining, joining and being led by the Lord, as he puts it. Quant consequently, the theme of holiness is less an inhering quality of creatures than it is a trace marker of the event of having been seized by God, of that creaturely difference from the world within the world that corresponds to God's own difference, that own self-distinction in the world and from the world. It's a kind of traffic in holiness going on. What it means to be made different in this way is exactly the content of sanctification. But Mescota here, as ever, restricts himself to explicating its form. His leading theme in all of this is human emancipation from religion. As he explains, God wills to release them from the thrall of the gods and the pagan powers, to separate them out from the chaotic churning of the world for the sake of their life on earth. The grammatical discipline of theology proper has already inaugurated this work, acting as, uh, as we've seen, a precaution or a preventative measure, again, his terms, to preempt our disposition towards religion and to interrupt and intercept our pagan thinking. Now, sanctification uh, as a long road, a struggle, a process, all phrases of his, is essentially the human business of owning this emancipation, of inhabiting this freedom from religion, of being released, being freed in this way, and so not having other gods, because and as one remains by and keeps faith with the one who has delivered us or redeemed us. It's interesting that Miskota finds a clear and unanxious grammar of human agency in all of this. Responsive and responsible to God's act of sanctification, human beings, he writes, must be ready to answer, to improve, and to change. They must actively sanctify themselves because they are sanctified, precisely as those, of course, who are already consecrated, confronted, called, and chosen. 
He continues, since life itself consists in actions and the human is their life, their act is their being, sanctification has a dramatic character. By drama, what does he mean? He means that sanctification involves a trusting and a joyful human celebration of their emancipation in a total life act that admits and owns and praises the fact that God has already and mercifully not left us, left us to ourselves, but rather graciously and decisively interfered with us and messed with our world. In short, in sanctification, this God is our God, and this one is the actor who has also made us actors. Something happens, he says, on both sides. Miskot accounts this pattern itself as part of the ground structure of the biblical witness. Humankind is called to act because, according to the biblical testimony, God exists in this way as the name, the virtues, the acts, and God speaks in reality so that humans must answer. And so the action of keeping the commandments just is that life act in which we keep faith with the Lord, remembering what God has accomplished and to whom we now belong. Again, as to form, Miskota emphasizes the negative aspect. Ingredient in the sanctification of the name is an active human disbelief, a disobedience vis-a-vis the chthonic and religious powers that drive natural life. This religion critical impulse is counted among the elemental features of biblical faith and, and constitutes an especial bequest of Israel to Christian faith. We must learn, he writes, that the anti-pagan character of scripture and the impossibility of natural theology are all decisive. Or again, scripture is a wholly anti-pagan testimony, repelling the natural religion of the human heart. And so, when we commit ourselves to this drama of sanctification, our trust and belief find a worldly expression in acts of lively distrust and disbelief of others. As he puts it, the more firmly we we believe in the name, the more unbelieving we become toward the primordial powers of life. God makes the elect people into unbelieving people. It's a fascinating statement. Or again, in an extraordinary passage, Miskotis says this. He says, effectively, sanctification entails the beginning and the principle of all of it, of all of sanctification, is the divine gift of unbelief the divine gift of unbelief. This God signifies the disenchantment of the world. And the sanctification that this God affects is, he continues, the de-divinization, the disenchantment of the world on our behalf. And then this, may this unbelief continue to grow so that it becomes our second nature. I think it's the only time in the whole text when he, he re- reverts into the vocative and we kind of praise on all our behalf. That that active disbelief should become our second nature is the outworking of sanctification. So having previously wound up the mainsprings of iconoclasm in theology proper, Miskota releases the catch here, as it were, so that the very life of the people of God now unspools as an energetic honoring of God's own act of self-distinction in the world and from the world through a human and a humane repetition of the Lord's vital demythologizing of that world. Let's go to here gestures, if only gestures, towards the necessity of a religion critical ethics and a religion critical politics, which owns and, and enacts the emancipatory iconoclasm of the saboteur God of Israel. 
the Lord who knows that sacralized power never sides with the poor of this earth. This too, of course, can be un understood as a form of expectation, what it looks like for the people of God to get ahead of themselves and to anticipate the consummation of the reign of God, even now by exalting the name in the way that they live. And Misko de can and does have positive things to say about sanctification as well, uh, speaking in a properly deflationary way of worldly living, of sobriety and practicality, of genuine worldliness, and perhaps even of a kind of religionless Christianity. But it's fair to say that the driving energy of his presentation lies entirely with the critical characterization of the holy life as a life summoned to revolt against its dehumanizing entanglements in sacralized net networks of religious and natural power. For Miskota, the offensive launched by scripture against the homo religiosis is an originary and inalienable event in the life of the people of God, and so essential to the ground structure of the biblical ABCs. Now, reflecting on this treatment of sanctification, two contemporary points of comparison came to mind. First, while religion critical theologies are unfashionable at the moment, there are exceptions to be noted, not least, I think, the work of Hans Joachim Krauss, who, in addition to addressing the topic uh, directly and at length, also incorporates the theological cr critique of religion into the elementary grammar of his own systematic theological work. Uh, it's interesting to me, at least, that Krauss shares both Miskota's reformed faith and was an Old Testament scholar for many, many years prior to, to taking up the post of uh, systematic theology at Göttingen. Uh, and that I think this feature of his theology is undoubtedly funded from his Old Testamental study. It's also interesting to me to pick a very different example, um, uh, that Christopher Morse's vision of contemporary Christian dogmatics is one of the relentless prosecution of what he calls theology as the task of faithful disbelief. Like Miskota, Morse conceives of the priority of the critical task in the Christian life, a rigorous and continual struggle to discern together in the community of faith just what allegiance to this God requires us to abandon, leave off, repudiate, and resist. Such faithful disbelief has active distrust and active disavowal as its ethical and po political uh, form, uh, both in Morse's work and I think finds here uh, um, a strong echo in Miskota's own vision. Second, one might also draw Miskota's th thinking here about self-sanctification and human agency in response to and in concert with God's prior sanctifying act into conversation with features of the theological anthropology de developed by David Kelsey in his recent eccentric existence. Kelsey's re revisionist project looks to develop a theological anthropology that's not predominated by soteriological framing and concerns in general, or by preoccupation with sin and its problematic in particular. Kelsey's work in this way draws deeply upon sustained engagement with the wisdom literature of the, the Old Testament, a body of scripture which affords, as he thinks, a different take on human being than that commonly delivered into dogmatics from controlling reflection upon the creation and fall stories in Genesis 1 to 3. The interesting point of comparison that, that I see here is this. Like Kelsey, Miskota's account of humanity under the rubric of sanctification is advanced almost entirely without reference to sin. And its essential logic is certainly not determined chiefly 
by some typical account of the problem of sin and the demands of reconciliation. This is, I think, a notable, if quietly understated feature of Miskota's presentation. But when Miskota sets out sanctification according to a fundamentally redemptive grammar, i.e. when he casts uh, sanctification as an emancipatory process, then his theological anthropology shows itself to, to indeed be a decisively soteriological one. It's set in a decisive soteriological framework. But the problem to which sanctification is the solution is not chiefly that of sin, guilt, and forgiveness, but rather the problem of human captivity to the elemental powers of the world, the flesh, the gods, which are no gods, religion and idolatry, and finally for Miskota always, fate. Human beings are understood here, pace, Kelsey, according to a fundamentally soteriological grammar, but not the traditional one that Kelsey himself has in mind, but rather according to what we might call a cosmic one, which comes to expression precisely in the immensely concentrated concept of religion. Okay, you've endured enough. So my final se section, and this is very brief. We've been concerned throughout the paper with three key themes in Mescota's work. First, with the recognition and recovery of the scriptures as a whole, and the Old Testament in particular as Torah for Christian faith and as its mother tongue. Second, with the elemental grammar of theology proper, whose taxis is built around acknowledgement and articulation of the implacable thisness of God. And third, with his account of sanctification as emancipation from the natural condition of religion in which God and the human are ordered partners, as it were. Throughout, we've noted how in keeping with the elemental quality of the scriptures as instruction himself, Miskota always associates biblical doctrine, its form, its emphases, its order with life. The matters that we have been considering are crucial, as he says more than once, precisely to quote him, for the gravity and fervor of our life, or again, for the sake of the security, joy, and resilience of our lives. Indeed, as he puts it once, the teaching of scripture just is a world to dwell in because it speaks about our own life. So in conclusion, let me simply try to formulate some few questions that Miskota's biblical ABCs might provoke for contemporary theology. And I have five and they're, they're, they're listed there on the, or the topics are listed there on the handout. So first, Miskota's work raises pressing questions concerning the nature of scripture and the interrelation of the Old and New Testaments in particular. What more might be said of this relation? To what extent, if any, does the New Testament not only repeat and confirm and consolidate the elementary grammar of the Old Testament witness, but perhaps also add to it or perhaps amend it in some way? Is the grammatical traffic only one way, as it were? What difference does it make if any, that the Christian church and theology receives the Old Testament and its witness only at the hands of the New Testament, or as it were, through the medium of its particular reception and redeployment in the New Testament. Does this transit in any way transform the received grammar or not? Relatedly, when it's said that in attending to the biblical ABCs, we Christians experience again how deep is our connection with Israel, just how capacious is the Israel to which the church here is reconnected? Does it extend to include, as for example, Friedrich Wilhelm Markhart would insist, 
post-biblical Judaism and the legacies of Midrash and Talmud? Does it dispose Christian theology in any particular way towards contemporary Judaism and contemporary Jewish thought, which of course can and does relate to the Tanakh in greatly different ways, not all of which might be adjudged to inhabit the elementary grammar that Nesco to here, here espies. So there's a whole range of questions re related to, uh, to, to the traffic between Old and New Testaments and uh, on that basis, the, the relationship between Christian theology and post-biblical Jewish uh, thinking and exegesis. Two, as regards the place and function of Christology in the elemental grammar of scripture as Ms. Gota here portrays it. If it's right that Christology does little discrete work here in establishing the particularity of our thinking and speaking about God, what are we to make of this? Does Miskota invite our Christologically overdetermined theology to undergo a kind of fundamental recalibration, perhaps? Do the biblical ABCs teach firmly what Kate Zondriger repeatedly asserts in her own recent writing, namely, as she puts it, not everything is Christology? Has Miskota taken a decision to displace Christology in some sense? And so, to some degree, for the sake of orienting the church to other neglected biblical and dogmatic goods? Is it a corrective of some kind? Is it in fact time for a long overdue demotion of Christology within Christian theology on the basis of a precisely a better discernment of the elemental grammar of the biblical witness and a better proportionality of our appreciation of, of the text as a whole? We might also ask just how tactical and or principled is this move in Miskota's work? Is the humbling of Christology chiefly for the sake of a better solidarity with the synagogue at that moment? Or is it a necessary corrective for reasons entirely internal to Christian dogmatics? We might also ask in a related way, how might the account of sanctification here offered by Miskota change or be amplified if something much more explicit was made of the role of Christ in, in laying out its form and, and content as might happen for, for example, in a discourse about discipleship. Okay, three, as regards the theological critique of religion, one might ask just how tenable is Miskota's view of religion, funded as it is here by a perhaps now somewhat dated phenomenological approach that's committed to distilling the essence of human rel rel religiosity. The sharp dichotomy between biblical faith and natural religion also, of course, presents itself as ripe for a little bit of deconstructing, searching out all the ways in which the purity and the priority of the former concept, biblical faith, is in fact already muddled with and by the latter concept, religion. Can the admittedly deeply unfashionable account of the human as homo religiosus, ingredient in this rendering of the grammar of the Bible, be sustained? especially under critical pressures from say, the sociology, the sociology of knowledge or historicism or the critique of ideology or the diagnosis of orientalism and so on. Uh, or in, in, indeed just when brought face to face with the contemporary internal crisis of religious studies. Or might Miskota's account of religion actually be open to restatement and rehabilitation on the basis of engagement with renewed contemporary phenomenology, especially renewed contemporary phenomenological interest in religion. Uh, one thinks of, the, of certain French thinkers like uh, Chrétien and Falca and 
Marion, but but also in recent English language work of the new phenomenologists uh, uh, here, we might think of Aaron Simmons and others. Beyond these kinds of concerns, one also notes that the theological critique of religion can be a particularly awkward and unwelcome guest where Christian theology as an academic discipline shelters in institutional spaces that are held open by the positive recognition of religion as a field of, hum of humanistic and social scientific inquiry of some actual and or uh, putative public and political interest. What challenges does the ongoing reception of Mescota's work raise for th theology being done under such institutional conditions, you might ask. Four, are we actually ready to do theology at all? Given the death of the Old Testament, Strawn's phrase, are our seminary and college curricula still fit for purpose to the extent that they recklessly assume formed familiarity with the biblical ABCs rather than instructing in them ab, ab ibn, Initio, as it were. Do we need to take up Miskota's practical suggestion to build and to operate the lair house of the Bet Midrash beside the church if Christian theology is to take responsibility uh, for the post Christendom situation, which demands that the Christian community, synagogue like perhaps, must deliver its own fundamental instruction in socio cultural contexts where the wider public culture no longer does so or wants to do so? And one wonders if reformed churches and congregations are in fact well-placed to venture such educational experiments. Finally, Miskota's biblical ABCs and his wider theological program raise a pointed question as well about the living relation of church and synagogue, Christian theology and Jewish thought. We might ask, whether Mascota's work in fact calls Christian churches and their theology with them to the vocation which they share with the Moabite Ruth, who, as if you've been following the lectionary lately, uh, you will have read again, commits herself fiercely to Naomi and so to Israel and so to the God of Israel in that order. Here's what she says. Uh, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. In Ruth's return, as the commentator Andre Lecoq comments, devotion to God comes through devotion to Israel. And he continues, this is a lesson that Christians have often attempted to forget. Escota suggests that this is a lesson that we learn from our biblical ABCs that to be tethered to Israel by way of its witness to revelation is the condition of any Christian faith that would be and remain free from the religious confusion and captivity that ever stalks it from within. That proper pursuit of life under the word enjoins this Ruthite vocation, if we can call it that, perhaps remains one of Miskota's greatest provocations for contemporary Christian thought. Thank you very much for your, for your patience and for your attention. Um, thank you so much. Um, I think uh, you see us all uh, putting the thumbs up and clapping. Uh, thank you so much, Phil, for this, uh, for this uh, great lecture. Um, 
uh, I think we all saw and hear, heard and, and felt uh, in a way that you have such a profound sensitivity uh, for what the, the, this book, Biblical ABCs of Miskolte, uh, is about. Um, of course, not without the, the range of, of questions uh, uh, that is also there. Um, to me, uh, these sentences from, from the Book of Ruth um, were moving. Uh, thank you so much for that, for your beautiful lecture. Um, okay, um, noticing that we are a bit behind uh, on our schedule, but we are here now, and uh, uh, of course there are uh, points of discussions and, and questions and so on. So uh, uh, please um, raise your Zoom hand. Um, who would like to react? Yeah, Douglas Herring, please. Oh, please, uh, you have to turn the, the microphone on. Marco yeah. asked if I might say a few words at the end, uh, but I'm going to have to leave to teach a class in a few minutes. I just want to, uh, number one, thank uh, Phil and, uh, and the rest of the people who made their presentations for uh, such wonderful and rich uh, stuff. Um, uh, and uh, I, I just want to pick up on uh, two things as questions, perhaps, to Phil. Um, number one, of course, you and I have been involved deeply in the uh, theology and apocalyptic uh, conversation, and in particular with uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, so I guess one question is, um, is it time for us to discern um, Miskote's uh, taxis of uh, the Old Testament more deeply in the Apostle? Um, and uh, make, make that in some ways a kind of uh, a, a priority task in, in, our, our, uh, in our reading of Paul. And, and so, for example, I, I mean, just thinking of sanctification, uh, where it might be possible to read uh, Paul uh, very much as uh, David Kelsey reads uh, the whole question of um, sin, guilt, and forgiveness. In other words, yeah. for Paul is... Is sanctification primarily about deliverance from the powers of this age and from uh, religion and so on? So that's that's one question I have. The other question uh, is is the question of metaphysics, mm -hmm. um, and uh, certainly I I think I follow Miscotti in wanting to come to metaphysics late, as it were, mm -hmm. but uh, as an act of resistance, particularly in a university context. Um, and I'm thinking especially in relation to uh, questions that the natural sciences raise, is it, is it uh, in some ways essential to come to questions of metaphysics um, as a way of resisting uh, the, the arguments, shall we say, against belief that, um, that uh, the universities and uh, natural sciences raise? And, and here I'm thinking of the kind of work that David Bentley Hart does. Right. which I don't see as, uh, I, well, I, I guess I have to, I, I'm not sure exactly whether metaphysics is coming late for him or too early, but right. in, in any case, uh, um, so just a couple of questions. Thanks. Small ones too, of course. <laughs> that's, that's great. Marco, shall I say something briefly to, to Doug's question? Yeah, please, please directly to the questions of Douglas. Um, maybe I can back up through them. 
Um, yeah, so the metaphysics question is an interesting one. I, I was thinking about this. Um, uh, you, you would remember in the exchange yesterday with, uh, in the panel discussion, um, Kate, of course, raising uh, interesting and important questions about just how um, uh, intelligible and uh, uh, even possible the kind of refusal of metaphysics uh, with the sort of intensity that Muscota pursues it here is, um, and whether or not it doesn't bring with it other kinds of liabilities, right? Uh, you know, she was worried about the, 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 the way in which this kind of thinking and speaking about God seems to do the thing which, which um, uh, I don't know, kind of perfect being theology, if you will, is keen to, to, to undo, which is precisely to confuse God as one thing among others, right? right. Um, and so, you can see the way in which, and that's that's of course David Bentley Hart's big big concern is that the 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 proper work of of, of the classically inherited metaphysics in the Christian tradition is precisely to police uh, and to articulate and to defend and articulate the 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 implications of creatio ex nihilo, right? That there are God, there's God and not God, and that's it. Um, right. And so. So, so Kate's entirely right about that, of course, that that is, and I think David Bentley Hart gives the best possible reading of, of, of what the ambition of that metaphysics is. So I guess to make it a question then, um, would there be other resources um, in Muscota's kind of toolkit or yeah. in this, in the world that Muscota's uh, uh, encouraging us to enter into, which could do the same thing? Right, which could take responsibility for the difference between God and not God, which could give voice to and police the distinction between creation and creator. Uh, and what might those be? If they're not metaphysical tools, right? are they, um, in keeping with his own kind of intellectual style, are they hermeneutical tools, chiefly? Are they a certain kind of poetics, a certain kind of semiotics? Uh, you know, the, the, there might be other fields of, of intellectual and endeavor that that would be the the sort of more natural companions for right. Miskota's way of doing things than than metaphysics that said you know he he says at various points and uh, uh in the in the post-war book um when the gods were silent that there's discussion of course of how how of exactly the move which he describes but never pursues here which is the move from know that the lord is god right the sequence is one right. thing right but the but the predicate of deity is there and presumably once it's introduced it's liable to further reflection and elaboration but the question is what are the, what's the right toolkit in order to affect that elaboration faithfully you know and and perhaps there is a kind of uh miscotian metaphysics that might be possible that would be sufficiently chastened and disciplined and channeled in the ways that he's been mm -hmm. arguing here on the other hand you can imagine perhaps a kind of uh, him doubling down, as it were, on the anti-metaphysical instinct and yeah. suggesting that Christians do better, um, uh, even if that were possible, not to undertake it, because there are other things which you should be doing that, that would actually be much more important. So I could see that kind of breaking in at least a couple directions. We'd have to read more, there'll be others who will mm -hmm. know more about the text here. Yeah, the the theology and apocalyptic, obviously this is the stuff that's been keeping me up at night for months, reading this, this coda. Um, I... Yeah, of course, one of the obvious uh, implications of this is uh, to the extent that we think that Miscode is uh, right, um, then we would like, we would be obliged to think that we, uh, we read the New Testament well when we read it with this grammar in our hands and in our heads, right? Um, and 
I suppose that I don't think that the kind of work that you and I and others have been uh, trying to, to pursue around the Apostle Paul does anything other than that. Right? But I do think that it's that it, that this encounter with Mescota helps to point out where the where the argument is. So yes. I think the argument is what belongs in the elemental grammar of Israel's faith, right? Um, and it's interesting to me to think about the canon of texts, the kind of operative canon of texts that 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 are at the heart of Mescota's thinking, and how 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 they might be like and unlike the operative uh, canon of texts that might be in the hands of. of of a kind of reader of the New Testament who wants to make much of its apocalyptic background, right? Um, the, they're simply not in this book, right? Um, yeah. Much by way of encounter with the later prophets, with the apocalypticists, you know, so on, so on, so on. What there is, of course, is a lot of engagement with Torah, as you as you might expect, with the psalmist, and so on. So that's I think that that's the place where where we might where the argument might be best engaged in in the in the spirit of Miskota's project, right? Um, uh, to to sort of come back to him and say, hang hang on a minute. Perhaps there are other elements. There are other ground words. There are other parts of this basic pattern here which we don't get unless and until we've spent a long time reading Isaiah and Daniel, for instance. You know, or yeah. you insert your apocalyptic text here right um so I, I think that would be this the the one strategy that i think i might recommend most i mean the one thing i do find um and and was delighted in, and I, I must say surprised to find uh is a real strong alignment but between the kinds of instincts that 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 he's pursuing in my own is precisely this point about sanctification as deliverance that's so striking right that the, that the basic problem to which the Old Testament addresses itself is not moral failure, right? right? Uh, but captivity to idolatrous powers. So it's extraordinary, right? Um, and that, I mean, that that piece of the grammar is 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 obviously comfortably at home in the kind of reading of Paul that you and I have been propagating for good or for ill. Um, and I think also probably changes the way that we come at the New Testament in really striking ways. So, so I think there would be, there's some really interesting traffic to, to, to kind of press on with here. And I, I mean, I'm keen to keep doing it to the extent that I'm able. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thanks Doug for the questions. Thank, thank you, Phil. Yeah. And thank you to the organizers for all of the work. And uh, I have to go now. So I'm just grateful for everything uh, about this conference. It's been wonderful. Teach Take well. care. Thank you for being with us, uh, Douglas. All the best. Um, are there, uh, also with a slight look at the clock, are there any other questions or remarks uh, about the lecture of Phil Ziegler? Susanna Ticciaria, please. Hi, I'll try and be very brief. Um, <laughs> I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the difference between no saying and othering. Um, and I, I guess I'm kind of coming in on your um, question three about his critique of religion um, mm. and how that works out in a religious studies context, as it were. Um, it, it, is that enough to go on? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, that's right. So they're, they're, these are two two different intellectual operations that that are easily collapsed, aren't they? Um, you know, on the one hand, it's one thing to 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 pursue um, as meaningful and possibly even theologically crucial a distinction between, say, faith and religion, right? It might be well uh, to formulate a concept of religion on explicitly theological grounds. He's he's about that endeavor. You know, we have other examples of that in the in the twentieth century 
tradition in his sort of space, Bart Bonhoeffer and others. Um, so that, I mean, and, and that in the first instance, of course, is, is, as you say, a kind of othering practice with a small O, right? You know, a kind of differentiation. We can draw meaningful distinctions. And, and of course we can ask about just how, how meaningful and firm and stable those are and what the, what kind of, um, what kind of um, negations are involved in that and, and whether they're viable and so on. Um, on the other hand, here, of course, religion becomes is not just something which is distinct from faith, but it but but is the enemy of faith. Right. So in that sense, it is the it's 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 the target, of course, not just of theological criticism that comes well downstream, but of actual divine repudiation in his understanding. So um, but of course, at that point, then we have to haul up and ask, well, OK, is is the thing that that God and then Israel and then because Israel also the church and then because the church also theology is called upon to, to say no to what, if anything, does that have to do with the kinds of things that, that our contemporary uh, uh, academic colleagues kick out in the world when they use the word religion, right? Um, and, you know, as we began to discuss yesterday, like his notion of paganism, the notion of religion here is a hugely compressed kind of, term that that that's it's a grenade in the middle of the system isn't it that just kind of threatens to blow in all directions um and so we'd really the, there's a real piece of work there to kind of think through the extent to which and you know, uh, what he's saying about religion um uh, uh, is or sorry tracks or doesn't track with the kinds of things that scholars of religion are saying but it, uh, at the present time so I, and you know that of course can be staged as a totally happy uh, and uh, and energizing and um, uh, interesting exchange. Mm -hmm. I suppose what what one might worry about, uh, which is where the question came from, I guess, in the first instance, is is just the thought that um, to the extent that 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 idiom, right, uh, becomes you know were to be thought to be essential to the way that we do justice to uh, to the essential grammar of the scriptures. Um, it's going to it's going to raise flags, you know, in all kinds of contexts, right? Um, and, and just discursively, and that just becomes a kind of um, a, what a kind of um, contextual um, uh, point of of self awareness and responsibility on the part of the theologians who are committed down this line to find ways of thinking and speaking in this way that don't just um, kind of kneecap. <laughs> Uh, uh, relations and conversations uh, from the outset, right? Um, so you want to be able to 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 at least win a hearing for the idea um, to, to to keep the conversation going. You can imagine this being. Uh, I was thinking about it in terms of um, Richard Rorty's sort of notion that certain kinds of religious talk are conversation stoppers, right? Uh, like once you've said something like that we're just done, right? There's no point in talking because no one think, kids can, can imagine how a conversation can go on from there. And one could worry that in practice, the theological critique of religion can have that kind of effect, right? Uh, you know, once you've said God hates religion, the title of a particularly um, sort of vigorous version of this book uh, or this thought recently, you know, you've, you've sort of, you've, you've ruptured a whole series of possible conversations. And perhaps some of those conversations need, need to be ruptured, but 
you wouldn't want to do it as a kind of preemptive strike, right? Or to, to suffer the breakdown of those com com conversations simply for discursive reasons. So yeah, it's a kind of meta problem in the way I've raised it. I'm sure there are pro there are more properly sort of uh, conceptual and material issues as well. But here, I guess what I had in my head was a kind of, yeah, um, uh, a kind of ethics of di discourse sort of problem in the first instance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sorry, I'm sure I haven't come, I, I haven't touched on the question you had in mind. <laughs> thank you, uh, but th thank you for this. Um, uh, in the meantime, uh, Miriam Elbush uh, also raised her hand. And I think that could be the last question or last contribution then. Uh, Miriam, are you still there? Yeah, I, I actually lowered it again okay. uh, because of the time. But um, just to add very briefly, of course, it's a problem, this, this situation of theology within religion, within the framework of religion. On mm -hmm. the other hand, it could also be a chance because um, uh, for, for Christian theology to reach out to, to atheists, to, to, to atheism, showing that um, that the biblical grammar may very well be an ally for them more than they think. <laughs> so it could also be a chance. Uh, that, that's, that's my point, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. for, for a rather, uh, for a world that calls itself uh, for partly atheistic. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, thank no, you so I, much for that. Yeah, I see that point. That's a uh, that's a fine a fine instinct as well. That, that there are ways in which the theological critique of religion puts theology in into other kinds of conversations which it might otherwise be forestalled with or from precisely because it's a, it's associated with religion in 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 some way. And that seeking those conversations is a hallmark of 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 a lot of twentieth century uh, re religion critical theology, as you know, um, not least the kind that was practiced under the uh, under the sort of conditions of the of the um the cold war right um uh, in places like poland and czechoslovakia and east germany and and elsewhere but um it does suggest that there are ways of thinking about uh, how theology um can address the questions that are important to uh, secular thinkers about human beings without having first to convince them that human beings are actually religious beings. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that agreeing that they're religious beings is a kind of, um, uh, uh, kind of the entry ticket to further con conversation, right? Um, uh, the, that that dy dynamic is done away with if, uh, if you're operating on these, these kinds of grounds, aren't they? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, yeah, thank you I so just much. Say really briefly, too, just one last thing. I really do. Mm -hmm. I appreciated uh, someone. It may have been Miriam, in fact, put in the chat a reference to a to a text that Miskota himself wrote on Ruth, which I'll admit to not having known about when I drew the analogy out of the 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 text at the end. So I'm I'm mm -hmm. thrilled to, to see that that's there. Uh, we'll have to put that on the translators list now for for a few. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, thank you. I, I, I also think that, that this uh, is really challenging to think about how to uh, really seek this conversation uh, that Miriam brought up, the conversation between theology, this kind of theology, uh, with a world that calls itself atheist uh, and, and, and so on, how, how to really have this conversation. Yeah. Okay, that's... Uh, um, Really interesting, um, and uh, there's much to do. Uh, so that's good to be continued, one might say. I think this is the moment when we are moving towards the ending and the conclusion of this day. 
and then also of this uh, conference. Uh, Phil, are you okay with that, that we uh, rounded up here? You've heard more than enough. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you again, everyone, for your, for your patience and your, your attention to the paper. I'm grateful to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carl Bart Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review in your podcast app. It will help others find the show. And if you have any feedback or questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is at Bart Podcast. That's all for me now. I'm excited to keep learning with you all. And I appreciate you listening. See you next time.